0: Welcome to the latest episode of Be Atento. I am Jesse Ulrich, CEO of Brandon Productions and editor of this podcast. The Be Atento Podcast offers helpful tips and stories from some of today's most successful entrepreneurs and investors, and is brought to you by Atento Capital, a Telsa-based venture fund focused on driving returns through early stage venture investment in local economic development and job creation. Atento stands for helpful, careful, thoughtful, conscientious, and polite as Atento Capital seeks to embody these characteristics to all of its stakeholders.
1: Hi, I'm Susan Spears, investment partner with Atento Capital, and I'm here today with Jordi Albert, co-founder and general partner of Walkabout Ventures. Walkabout is a pre-seed fintech fund with a geographical focus, uh, presence in LA, New York, and a sprinkle of Tulsa. Jordy, great to have you here today.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, I think it would be great if we could just start off and hear a little bit about your background. Um, you know, we're big fans of the operator-turned-investor model, and so would love for you to just walk us through where you started and, and what the idea was for Walkabout.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll start actually with my my partner then. Um, so Josh Diamond has been a career fintech investor. Uh, used to be with a firm called Clock Tower Technology Ventures. Helped them build out their venture practice, which was focused exclusively on fintech. Realized, I guess about three, coming up on four years ago now, that he uh, really wanted to focus on pre-seed and seed, being the first check-in. Uh, and helping fintech founders really get things off the ground, and so he launched About One um, by himself in 2019, which was a 10.7 million dollar fund. Uh, and him and I have been friends since we were, you know, little baby VCs, I guess eight or eight years ago, maybe maybe even a little bit more than that. I used to be with a firm called Edison Partners, uh, which was a East Coast-based fintech growth equity or Series A and B firm. Um, yeah, heavy focus on fintech, mostly B two B. But Josh and I met there as we were kind of like running a, a across the market trying to find fintech things to do. We ended up co-investing in a company called Moneyline together and after about three years and some change at edison i ended up joining Moneyline and, and spent four years there eventually as their chief revenue officer running all new product development strategy go to market um, those sort of things which was a lot of fun just because inside of a larger fintech business um got to launch a bunch of many many startups and seeing really from soup to nuts how you launch scale and operationalize a handful of different financial products we did Uh, banking products, had checking accounts and debit cards. Um, We had a suite of different credit products, both closed in installment, loans, credit building loans, salary advances, which ended up being our most popular product. And then we had a suite of investing products as well. We kind of wrapped that all into one financial membership, but getting to launch each one of those was its own unique challenge, um, which I'd like to believe gave me at least a little bit of insight of maybe Mm ways not to do things, and then we learned how to fix them over time, which uh, definitely colors how we tend to collaborate with founders in our portfolio. Uh, And so I left MoneyLion, I guess, toward the end of 2020, um, as they were gearing up to go do their eventual SPAC process. And then Josh and I decided to team up at that point. I had flirted with the idea of starting a company, ended up not being brave enough, but uh, called up Josh, told him I wasn't going to end up doing it, and he said, you know what, I think it'd be a better idea if we just launched a fund together. And so we went and raised the second fund together. Really beginning in 2021, um, did our first close in Q2 of 2021, and then ended up eventually closing on $65 million. And so with Walkabout, um, we're a pre-seed and seed-focused fintech fund. Um, We make $1 to $3 million initial investments. We pretty much lead exclusively, um, and we're probably, call it half B2B, half consumer. Uh, Really, the only things that we don't do are international deals outside of the US, Um, and then crypto, blockchain, Web3. I guess just because we refuse to make money or don't like to, um, but at least that dynamic seems to be shifting or changing a little bit now. So a little bit less remorse for for not dipping our toe in those waters. But uh, that's us in a nutshell.
1: Well, that's great. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that overview. Um, I'd love to dig in a little bit on you know you mentioned the the benefits of being an operator and how that informs the way you collaborate with your founders. Um, you know, do you think? That the way you collaborate from an operator background gives you that advantage in in trying to source and win allocation in in rounds with founders.
2: I would hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, Josh and I each have our own ways that we try to contribute to to companies. It certainly helps, I think, to have been in similar shoes at least for a period of time to know just the craziness um, that comes with trying to build and, and scale something. Um, particularly like when there's a lot of uncertainty around it. Like at Money Lion, um, you know, we had built a scaled product that we were then sort of evolving or almost pivoting into an entirely different business model. And so it felt like three or four different times we were going to die. And so the stress and pain that comes with that um, is, I think, something that helps you empathize with founders is they're going through their own like founding journey and building. And so I think it's helpful from an empathy standpoint just to be able to connect with them on a deeper level. Um, and then it allows us to, I think, speak with some perspective that maybe not every investor can, can ultimately offer. Um, and so, I don't know, there are four ways that we tend to collaborate with our portfolio. Um, usually it's on like, the capital formation side where I would say you know, Josh is probably one of the most talented people I've ever seen in terms of knowing you know, what other investors in the market like. And so when a company you know, should go raise additional capital, who we should bring into the syndicate with us, which investors you should talk to first, and just really how to sequence things um, to save everyone time. Not just our founders and helping them run an efficient process, but also you know, investors downstream of us, making sure we're not wasting their time with a deal that they're ultimately not going to be interested in. So we help them on the capital formation side, uh, on the team-building side, which if every VC over-promises and under-delivers on. But um, we do our, our best to maybe under-promise and at least deliver from time to time on helping them build out their initial team. Um, and then we get really active on the go-to-market and sales front. For a lot of our teams that tend not to have um, a more commercially-minded co-founder as part of the initial mm-hmm. team, You know, we'll tell them, you know put that off at least for the first year or two, and then we'll be out your outsourced BD team or sales team for the first year or two. Um, it's incredibly I think, easy and efficient for us just because our job all day every day is talking to different participants in the market, whether it's, you know, vendors and banks and different capital markets providers that could be eventual clients or other fintech companies that could be clients of products. So it allows us to, I think, in a pretty efficient way, provide that leverage to our portfolio companies. And then lastly is on the product side. And that's where I really try to leverage a lot of the operating experience. Um, I think at MoneyLion, one of the things that I, I grew deep appreciation for um, was the nuance that comes with product mm-hmm. considerations or decisions. Um, and so when we were launching, you know, like I said, we had banking products, we launched um, a checking account program and rolled it out to a million plus people. It felt like overnight, at least in, you know, call it three, six months, I forget the time frame. And that sounded like the greatest thing ever until we realized it was actually the worst idea ever. Um, Because all of a sudden, you know, we were learning about kinds of fraud vectors that we didn't anticipate beforehand. We realized maybe we didn't use the right vendors and it was negative gross margin to start. Yet we had, you know, a million plus cards in force. And so we had to think from, you know, not even 180 days after launching this program, we have to go back to like the drawing board and rebuild it from scratch. And so the nuance that exists with... um, really the demographic that you're building for, uh, the product that you're launching and how you plan to monetize it really implicates ultimately how you construct the product and all the underlying decisions that you make. So if you're building, let's say, a consumer debit product um, for a down market consumer, um, you're going to want to work with a very specific processor type of bank partner. Uh, Even some networks, I think, are better than others in terms of how you ultimately uh, position things for that that, uh, demographic in a unit profitable way. And we did not do that right the first way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, whether it's a consumer debit product or building a commercial lines insurance product, uh, it just implicates how you want to think about building the infrastructure. And that's something that um, we've done incorrectly in the past. And try mm-hmm. to you know draw from those experiences to work with our our portfolio founders. And from time to time, I'd, I'd like to think gives us an upper hand in um, getting them to ultimately choose to work with us.
1: Yeah, I um, you know as someone who's looked at a lot of funds and a lot of different fund managers, I, I always appreciate when there's um, a really strong balance of skill sets with different GPs. You know, you bring some really great operating experience from Moneylion while you also have the investor experience. And then to your point, Josh is incredible with the capital formation side and, and bringing that together. And from a founder's perspective, you know, I would want someone at the table who can provide both of those things to help me along the way. Um, you know, as you guys started building Walkabout and and now, you know, you you're, you've had a really successful fund too. How do you think about growing your personal brands, the fund brand and building a culture that allows you to be a franchise down the road versus, you know, just a fund today?
2: That is tough. And uh, I appreciate you saying that we've had a successful Fund 2. We have no idea how fun 2 is ultimately going to go. It was- um, Fair.
1: It's a long we, feedback loop.
2: We were very fortunate with the partners that we got around the table. Um, and we have you know, some LPs that uh, are drinking the same Kool-Aid that we are in terms of how we try to source opportunities, the founder archetypes um, and personalities that we like to back, and how that ultimately implicates um, the way that we invest and collaborate with them. I think it's slightly off-center. Uh, to what a lot of other seed funds are doing. And I, I think that's half the battle is figuring out your way to compete. For a lot of funds, it is building a brand. And like, whether that's being very active on Twitter or social media or having blogs or um, you know, being on the industry you know, conference circuit and constantly mm-hmm. speaking at those things. Um, it's an incredibly effective strategy for building top of funnel and a lot of awareness so that when you know, the next founder that's building a fintech business or whatever business it is that you're focusing on um, is thinking of what investors they want to reach out to, like that's actually a great way to build that top of funnel and um you know create more interactions and opportunities that way. For Josh and myself, it's just not how we're oriented. We're not um we're not brand builders ourselves. And quite frankly, I think if we try to feel both inauthentic, um, and we wouldn't do a very good job of it. And so our brand is anti-brand. Um so if you go to our website, it's nothing more than our logo. Um, you know, we don't publish like many things, like we don't try not to do many like speaking engagements or anything like that just because um Again, we've we've tried to keep as much of the attention on our founders as possible. They're the ones that are doing like the hard work at the end of the day, um, and we're just trying to do our part in helping them like bring their dream to a success. Mm-hmm. And so, that has resulted in us, you know, at first maybe it was like a very concerted strategy or laziness. Who who knows what it was? But then um, I think in our circle of of founders that we've been able to build both the direct relationship through investing as well as just the broader second and third degrees of that network. Um, I think there is actually some appreciation for. Not caring about that particular side of the business, just wanting to, you know, clock in every day, do our work, and let our founders go to bat for us. And so, um, you know, even I, I think in our fund two portfolio, we have uh, about to be thirteen investments. Um, fund one was fourteen investments. So we have twenty seven direct companies. Then walkabout. Josh has a bunch of his you know legacy portfolio companies from from clock Tower. I have a handful from both Edison as well as just um, you know companies that I invested in or advised personally that we still. Uh, And then you have everything that we, like, passed on but, like, feel like our our, our children, too, that we wish were part of the family. Mm. And so there are a lot of companies that we try to, you know, provide as much time uh, and dedication as we possibly can. And, you know, sometimes it's in your portfolio and have a very direct economic benefit to doing so. Other times it's, like I said, you just um, built a relationship or an affinity for a particular founder and, like, the problem that they were trying to go solve. And you want to help them because you want to see them be successful. Mm. Um, and this is uh, a little bit of a, a perverse benefit, but at the same time, by investing, you know, a lot of time and energy in folks that you don't have a direct like economic incentive, um, you know, attached to, I think it kind of feeds that flywheel of um, sort of more of that second and third degree of your network growing through really um, um, testaments from other founders that have worked with you both mm-hmm. directly and indirectly. And so that's what we've tried to invest in is just blood, sweat, and tears, and working our tail off for all the founders that we. Um, um, have worked with in both in that capacity directly and indirectly, and hoping that by you know being there for them in good times, hard times, um, when we didn't invest, connecting them with an investor that ultimately does invest, uh, helping them from a product standpoint, even when you know we're not directly on the cap table, that it leads them to suggest us to their founder friend or mm-hmm. another friend of theirs that's an operator at a you know valuable private tech company that thinks they want to go start a business in six to twelve months, and that's really kind of the strategy that Josh and I have tried to double down on is, let's do less deals and invest in more relationships, and those relationships will breed more relationships. And we can, you know, forward invest six, 12 months of time and energy uh, before someone's ultimately a founder to try to help them get to that point where they want to make the jump, you know, help them think through what do they want to do, who do they want to do it with, and then, um, you know, when do they make that jump ultimately? And so it gives us an opportunity to, one, sell ourselves over a longer period of time, Uh, And then also the opportunity to underwrite them over a longer period of time. And at the end of that, um, sometimes we invest, sometimes we don't. But I think there, again, just is this benefit of all that time and energy that we invested, irrespective of whether we end up investing actual capital that continues to feed that flywheel of of driving more and more people to our top of funnel, um, even if we aren't tweeting um, or posting on social media or like trying to create buzz um, or or sort of name recognition that way.
1: Yeah, I I think there are so many different ways to create a brand. There are the funds out there that are very Twitter heavy. There are the funds that that run the conferences. And to your point, you you have to do what's right for you. And nothing speaks louder than actually doing the work and seeing the results. And so... you know, personally, I, I think that the, the approach you all are taking of just putting in the work and, and letting the founders speak for you is a really great way to build that that lasting brand. Um, I'd like to switch gears slightly for a second and, and talk more broadly about what's going on in fintech right now. Um, it, it goes without saying that we're coming off just a, a wild market um, and things are now starting to normalized downturn, um, and, and people have opinions. I, I would love to hear how you think about what the, the next year of fintech opportunities look like, um, given some of the contractions in the growth stage and public markets and, and what does that mean for how you think about, you know, opportunities over the next 12 months?
2: Oh goodness. Um, (laughs) I think fintech for as long as I've been in it, which, um, isn't that like One of the things that annoys me is people always say they've been doing fintech since, you know, before it was called fintech. And that's, I mean, categorically, like, I think false across most things. You know, I, one thing I do really appreciate about the firm I used to work for Edison is they've been doing fintech for 30 plus years. So even in my limited, call it eight, nine, 10 years of, of fintech exposure, it's very clear that, you know, financial services more broadly, um, it's constantly some kind of groundhog day experience. Like you see, One particular trend take off, um, people overinflate, you know, how much value actually resides within that trend, and it comes crashing down. And then two, three years, the same trend plays through, and then we're seeing it crash down again. So I actually think um, both, you know, this next year and even beyond, uh, you know, the future of fintech is going to look a lot like the past. It's just going to be, I think, with a a bit more uh, reality, uh, and I think a bit more scar tissue that's been baked into just how much exuberance falls behind some of these trends— and I think one of the issues that we had the last, really twenty four to thirty six months, um, is too much capital mm-hmm. going into a lot of look like businesses, um, a lot of companies that were going after the same, call it four or five opportunities, um, and they're trying to pr- like prop up these growth numbers and these valuations that were you know, maybe not unsustainable in isolation, but when it's spread across four or five participants in the market, it ultimately does become unsustainable. And you have to raise capital just to keep up with the Joneses. And as you raise capital at, again, inflating valuations, you have to go find ways to continue to support that growth. And one of the things that I think resulted of that, that was, you know, really unnatural or unhealthy for, you know, the fintech ecosystem that finally is getting washed out. There's uh, a little bit of a a hangover to it now, was you had a lot of companies pretending that they were something that they weren't. Mm. And you know, the few examples that uh, I really like to look at uh, around this particular issue, BNPL was one of like the hottest spaces, both in consumer and B2B, for the last three plus years. And so and you had- for,
1: for our audience, BNPL.
2: Buy now, pay later, mm-hmm. um, which we've, is- We've all
1: seen it when we've been checking out on, on online. The buttons are, <laughs>
2: I mean, everywhere now. Everywhere. So when you pay with a firm or Afterpay or Klarna, mm-hmm. um, and there's even more like uh, beyond that, that have like emerged in this last three, four, five years- And originally it was actually, it was a great innovation in fintech. Like they had positioned themselves as payment companies, not lenders. And payments companies uh, trade at very different multiples and have different perceived market sizes than a lot of lending businesses do. Um, And I think on surface level, that was actually true originally. When Affirm and Afterpay and some of the original and Klarna, like some of the original buy now, pay later businesses emerged, um, they really had created a new economic incentive structure that resembled more of a payment transaction than it did a lending one, where you had a consumer um, that may or may not convert on transaction. And by offering 0% financing, you're able to both increase the average order value and the conversion rate um, because they were able to smooth that over Mm -hmm. three or four payments for no interest. And so merchants were very willing to subsidize the lenders in that case because it was driving bigger orders, more conversion. And the lenders um, were only taking two, three, four months of duration risk uh, and getting all of their economics up front. So while it's not you know, two to three days of, of delayed economics, like a payments transaction when you're swiping a card, it's a whole lot better than a five-year term loan where a consumer has risk-based pricing paying 20% a year. Uh, there can be heavy default rates, so on and so forth. And so that version of buy now, pay later was actually quite healthy. Um, and I bought some of like, oh, maybe this is like payments-like. Um, but as you started to have more and more companies emerge from that trend and realize, oh, there's a lot of value to chase here, raising more and more capital at like crazy valuations and then having to support those, they had to start seeking out additional purchasing use cases that didn't have the same market structure dynamics that uh, the original use cases did. And so with original buy now pay later, you had enough margin with the merchants where they could actually support this use case The transaction sizes weren't so big that they had to be smoothed out over five, six years. They could be smoothed out over two, three, four months Um, as they needed to support more and more growth and finding more and more transaction use cases, things like expenses started getting bigger, uh, which means they have to be smoothed out over a longer period of time. Um, Transactions were lower margin, meaning merchants didn't have the economic profile to subsidize the economics for the consumer, meaning all of the lender's economics then had to come from the consumer again. Mm. So long-winded way of saying (laughs) these payment companies very quickly became lending businesses again. Yet they kept on raising at 20, 30, 40X multiples Pretending that they were payments businesses, mm. and once you reach you know forty plus billion dollars of market cap, um, like in the cases of Affirm or Klarna privately, um, you're going to come crashing down at some point once like people start waking up to what the business really is. So, BNPL is one version of that. The same thing happened with a lot of interchange oriented businesses. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened across insure tech, where you had you know investors and companies conflating uh, you know gross written premium with revenue, um, and then you even had some categories that I think um, just were, were not fully proven out before too mi- many venture dollars like came into them. Banking as a service was one um, where you know these technology platforms would make it a lot easier to launch like payment cards for example. Or you had the payroll APIs which would allow you know, consumers to link in, You know, provide the credentials to their payroll account so that you can pull in payroll data. And these were unproven markets, but so many companies popped up because they saw, oh, this business just you know started six months ago and they've already raised $20 million. I'm going to go start a copycat because I could also raise $20 million. Sure. And that happened six to 12 plus times across both those categories before the market was really proven. Mm-hmm. And it creates really unhealthy competitive dynamics that actually doesn't allow you to, like when you're building out a new market and proving like a new opportunity, mm-hmm. There's an actual back and forth that has to happen between like the market or customers and like the new platform. Like you're not going to build it right day one. You have to actually have patient customers willing to kind of learn with you. But when too many companies pop up, all of a sudden they start talking about how bad the other solutions are. Oh, you should switch over to us. We don't have those same issues. Okay, Mm -hmm. client switches over to the other competitor uh, and they Mm -hmm. have all the same issues. And so Mm -hmm. it created this really unhealthy competitive dynamic to where I just – think a lot of venture dollars are going to get burned there on a category that should have been really, really interesting. So I think those have been some of the issues with what happened in fintech. But I think the same thing is going to play itself out again in the future. It's just us as investors, we have a BNPL business. Mm -hmm. Um, We have one focused on fertility finance that through clinics, um, companies called Sunfish, uh, allows people to get access to incredibly low-cost financing for IVF, surrogacy, so on and so forth. Um, But the advice that we try to provide to our founders there we have an interchange oriented business we have two insured tech oriented businesses is don't try to pretend that you're something that you're not capitalize the business in line with the business that you're actually building and if over time you realize you know your PL or economic profile looks different than a traditional lender especially a finance company or a traditional interchange oriented business then we can start thinking about like capitalizing at higher multiples but if you raise so much money at such inflated values, pretending that you're something that you're not, it's gonna make the inevitable fall a whole lot harder. So we just have been trying to like look in the rear view at everything that's happened now for the second time, as we're investing in similar models that are gonna be playing out over the next two, three, four, five years, mm-hmm. and just hoping that they can learn from those experiences and not not commit the same mistakes.
1: Yeah, I uh that's that's such interesting insight. And thank you for giving those super specific examples. I think it it really contextualizes. Um, a lot of the the hype and the crash that we've we've seen with a lot of these categories and ultimately it sounds like finding that product market fit for what this specific company is working on is really important and not not trying to scope creep into other markets and other consumers um, and and it's all about discipline right as an investor and and trying to find, exactly where your, your conviction lies, um, and staying disciplined around that and not getting caught up in the hype. Um, so just, you know, a couple more questions and I, I'm, then I'll, I'll leave you to your day, but I'm, I'm curious. One question I want to ask is you know, just what's, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you professionally?
2: Oh gosh. There've been a lot of them. Um, I've, I've been, incredibly fortunate with having, you know, some pretty great people in my, both just life in general, but particularly along like my career path. I wish I could point out one thing in particular, but it's been a, I think a common, common thread across like a few different professional relationships over time. Mm -hmm. And I think the net of it all of it all is I've never been qualified for any of the jobs that I've had. Um, and I've always been very fortunate to have someone like make a bet on me. Um, and it's actually, it's something I'm deeply appreciative, but also want to figure out a way to emulate, like, Mm. again, not to, you know, dovetail into something else, um, for too long, but I've long been a big PayPal fan. And like one of their ethos was, you know, hiring young, inexperienced people, um, that hadn't hit the crazy, uh, slope on the, their curve or trajectory of, of their eventual skill and career path, um, and being able to identify that talent and sort of, you know, the crazy asymmetric upside it could have, um, You know, we try to do that in the founders that we find um, and finding some, you know, off the beaten path gems that, you know, maybe are less loved by like the rest of the venture market, but it's a a skill that I want to continue to sharpen. And um, I hope to prove some of the people that made a similar style of bet on me eventually right. Uh, Again, still lots of of things to play out to see if it uh, will end up playing out that way. But I think the common thread is just, you know, I had one person here locally in Tulsa, William Piva, Mm -hmm. um, who I met randomly at an event here in Oklahoma. Uh, when I was still at University of Tulsa. And I had this crazy thought that I wanted to go into investment banking. But like no one from my college went into investment banking. I couldn't find any alumni that were in investment banking. And I randomly meet him at this event where I find out he was a healthcare investment banker at JP Morgan in New York City. I'm like, oh, that's a dream. I want to go be an investment banker in New York City. So I convinced him to get coffee with me. And after a couple years, or a couple hours of, of talking with him, he goes, you know, why the hell do you want to be an investment banker? Just come work for me. Um, I had no idea what venture capital was certainly, like, still to this day, I understand nothing about the companies that we were investing in. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he was a PhD, molecular biologist. I was an economics student. Um, all that said, he, I think, appreciated just the interest and drive that I had at that point in time. Um, and he exposed me to this world of venture capital that I've now obviously fallen in love with. Um, thankfully, I got out of biotech because I was never going to be smart enough to, like, exist there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but found my second love, which was, was fintech. And so... William was um, the first one to like really give me a chance that I certainly was not qualified for, and it happened a few times after that. Like when I got to Edison, Edison hadn't hired someone without an MBA before. I was 21 at the time, I want to say, um, and like could not believe that I had gotten a shot there. Um, and so they gave me a lot of rope even after that mm. to like, you can either hang yourself with it or you can go and like prove that you might actually be able to do something interesting there. And so. Um, thankful to them for giving me a shot. And like, I don't need to keep playing the same song and dance, but that happened another couple of times after that. And so for me, it's just, um, it's, it's been like this, I guess, reoccurring, but not on that many of, of instances, uh, experience where someone was just willing to take a bet without any of the merit being there. Um, and so I'm deeply privileged and appreciative uh, to have had that opportunity. But that's certainly been uh, the consistent, nicest thing that anyone's done for me in my professional life.
1: Yeah, no, I, um, that's, that's a great response. And, you know, people always say that venture is about the people. Um, and, and in my experience thus far, that is completely true. You know, we're in a, I, I'm glad you didn't go into investment banking. Um, Me too. <laughs> I think a lot of people who are in that role right now probably don't experience the same level of, um, you know, helpfulness and kindness from others. And, and maybe they do, and I hope they do, but you really experience that in venture. And so, um, Jordi, we're really grateful to have you here today and um, excited to to learn more and watch Walkabout grow um, and, and continue to have more of your presence here in Tulsa. Over well, time. I
2: love being here and thank you for having me today. And thank you to Atento for the support. So uh, it's a partnership that we deeply appreciate and we look forward to uh,
0: continuing it for a long time.
1: Same same for us. Thanks.
0: Thank you everyone for tuning in to the Be Atento Podcast. You can find this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. Make sure to subscribe or follow and to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to follow At- Atento Capital across all social media platforms. And we look forward to speaking with you all again on the next episode of Be Atento.